Let's just open this portion uh, in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, allowing us to come here this morning and to be reminded of such great truths from Scripture. And as we sung these songs and hymns and choruses, Lord, a blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Uh, And Lord, as we think of what uh, Jesus has done for us, uh, we are so thankful and that you would give your son for us. We are thankful. God, uh, give us hearts of gratitude. Uh, Lord, give us uh, ears that are willing to be uh, open right now and and hearts willing to receive your message. And God, I just pray that you would speak through me, uh, speak to us. May this be your message, uh, Lord, which you would have us to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, at some uh, a neighbor's house on Monday with some other neighbors, and uh, uh, we were playing games, and we got into a conversation uh, of house rules. Now, how many of you grew up with house rules, certain rules that you had in your house? And, and I won't embarrass you to tell me some of the rules you have in your house now, but is any, any peculiar house rules that you grew up with that you'd be willing to share Okay, that's a good house rule. Anyone else? I think that's in scripture somewhere. <laughs> Anyone else? Ah, good one, good one. That's what our conversation on Monday was. Specifically, kitchen rules. Uh, one more. Anyone else have a? Children should be seen and not heard. Yes. I got told that one a lot. I think my dad used to say children should be seen and not heard and preferably not seen. But that was, uh, yeah, I, I probably deserved that when I was younger to be, to be told that. And I think he said it in jest, I hope. Um, anyways, I, I grew up with, with certain uh, house rules. A lot of them had to do with the TV. What we, my parents watched the better black and white TV upstairs and we had to watch the worst black and white TV downstairs. Uh, we had the tiniest kitchen when I think of the house growing up, and there were six of us, and we were all big people, but we ate every meal at the kitchen table inside this kitchen that was so small, and the dining room was only for Sunday meals, or if we had guests over, and no one sat in the living room upstairs. Even to the day my parents uh, got out of their, their last home, we didn't sit on the good couch, and there were certain pillows that had to be behind the couch and certain pillows that you could rest your head on. So th- th- there was all... There was all kind of, of house rules, and house rules and expectations of people that would be in our house and, and uh, guidelines for, for our children or for visitors influence who we invite into our house. And if they don't influence who we invite into our house, they very much influence who we would re-invite uh, into our house. So if you had a house rule that you always took your shoes off at the front door uh, and you invited uh, someone in uh, who came with dirty boots and they wore the dirty boots through the house, probably a good chance you may not invite them back uh, into your house. And, and these house rules and these guidelines and these questions, like what kind of person would you invite into your house, uh, became that much more significant for me uh, when I owned my first house. Uh, And when Alice and I bought our first cottage, uh, and all of a sudden you have those eight or nine precious weekends of the summer, uh, and invariably you invited another family to come join you. 
Uh, and so you'd run through the checklist. Okay, what family's going to fit the house rules or the cottage rules so that we were going to enjoy our, our weekend? And those questions even became more relevant when some friends of ours asked if they could rent our cottage for a week. And I started asking myself, well, what kind of person, what kind of family would I rent my cottage to? And then, this is before I got married, my first house, living as a bachelor, I had two different occasions where friends of mine asked if they could actually rent a room or actually live with me. Uh, And that's an even deeper question because I live there too. Uh, I dwell there, and so they're going to be constantly in my space. And so again, I found myself asking, what kind of person am I willing to allow to live with me and and to stay uh, in my own home? And I think we can relate to some of those questions, and we're just ordinary people. I'm just an ordinary person asking those questions. Those those, uh, questions become even more significant when we're talking about someone that the world would consider to be important. And over the last couple of months, I've watched with fascination uh, at the inauguration of Donald Trump and the transitioning of uh, Donald Trump uh, from Barack Obama. Uh, And uh, during the transition period, often cameras would be showing Trump Towers uh, in the lobby. And it seemed that there was a, a constant flow of people But very few people got into the elevator. You couldn't just choose to go up to Donald Trump's floor uh, and go and visit him. Uh, The same thing with the inauguration. It was a very select crowd that actually sat around uh, Donald Trump and his wife and the vice president during the inauguration. Because the bottom line is, not just anybody can come directly into the presence uh, of the president or or, or the prime minister uh, for that matter. And so we would ask the question, well, what kind of person can freely come into the presence of a president or a prime minister or of a queen or of a president of a a large company? Who has unobstructed access just to come for a visit? And let alone a visit, who would be eligible to come and live at the White House, for instance? Like you imagine someone coming with their suitcase to the White House and saying to one of the Secret Service, hey, I'm just coming to stay for a while. You just, you just don't do that. I've been thinking this week of an even greater context where those questions come into play. I think about it at times when I'm coming to church on Sunday morning. I think about it at times when I'm praying with my children before they go to bed. I think about it at times when I consider my own relationship with God. And obviously that greater context is God. What kind of person is invited into the presence of God? What kind of person can freely come into the presence of God? Who is eligible? Who is unobstructed to not just come into the presence of God, but to actually stay in the presence of God? What are God's house rules? And those last questions may sound kind of strange. But it's kind of odd that we may hear them as strange. Because I think you understood when I was talking about my own space that that it makes sense that I would ask those kind of questions. What kind of person am I going to invite into my own personal space? And we get it that not just anybody can go into the presence of someone who the world sees as important. 
Why is it that we probably don't think as much about those questions when it pertains to God? Now, I know this morning that there are probably a number of differing mindsets uh, as we've walked in. Uh, I think of that chorus, I don't think we sing it very often, but that, the song that we used to sing, Here I Am to Worship, and, and uh, uh, it, it's almost a presumptuous first line of a song. Uh, and depending on how you sing it, what kind of emphasis you put on that line, uh, it, it may reflect the attitude that we bring as we come here to worship. Uh, it could be a real apathetic emotion. Here I am to worship. Let's get this over with. Uh, it could be a, a, a rushed mindset. Okay, here I am to worship. Let's go. I got an hour and a half and I'm out of here. Lunch is at 12. It could be j- routine. Here I am to worship because that's what my phone told me. At, at 10 o'clock, I need to be here for the service. Now, I realize that there are some here and, and, and your mind says, here I am to worship. God, I'm here to worship you. The, the passage I want to look at with you this morning would suggest that asking these kind of questions, what kind of person can freely go into the presence of God? Who is eligible to not just uh, visit, but to dwell uh, in the presence of God. That, that these are the kind of questions that we need to be asking ourselves as we prepare to come before the Lord in worship. And I'll caution you up front that the answers that the psalmist gives uh, to these questions are kind of disturbing. They will impact our worship. They're going to let us know really quick that God does have house rules. That, that we are entering holy ground. And the words of the psalmist are going to be an invitation, uh, even greater, a call for self-examination as we desire to come before God in worship. And so what kind of person is free to come into the presence of God? Who is eligible? Who, who is unobstructed to come into the presence of God? Well, let's take a look at what the psalmist says uh, in Psalm 15. Over the last couple of weeks, I, I looked at Luke's account in Acts of the, the birth of the church in Philippi, and I suggested that this week we were going to start looking at the, the letter to uh, the Philippian church Uh, But last week I mentioned that I was going to postpone that a bit just because of the way the preaching calendar works so there'd be uh, some continuity. So this week I've I've been grappling with what I'd like to talk about today. And it really, uh, I came to a decision Wednesday night at our elders meeting as we were talking about uh, a couple of issues. Uh, And uh, it's really amazing to see how God orchestrates things because... I just told Arnie when he asked me, what am I speaking on this Sunday? I said, well, I'm not speaking on Philippians. I'm, I'm not really quite sure what I'm going to land on, so just pick songs about Jesus. Uh, and he asked me, and he said he needed some scripture passages, and I gave him some scripture passages after he had chosen the songs. I looked at it and go, wow, like that, everything's just meshing. And you're going to see at the end that it really meshes. Wow, as we sing the song, as we transition uh, into the table. And so Psalm 15, uh, reading at verse one is the, is the psalm I want to consider with you this morning. 
And verse 1 says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? We hear verse 1, and I don't think it strikes as, as odd as maybe it should. Because really what the psalmist is asking uh, that we would be able to relate to would be if we came here this morning and instead of walking in the door and Barry and Janet shaking our hand and giving us a bulletin and saying good morning, uh, what it would really be like is if we came to the door and Barry and Janet were kind of blocking the entrance and we said, who is worthy to enter and worship? That's how this psalm worked uh, in the history of Israel. It it was known as entrance liturgy, uh, an entrance formula. And so the would-be worshiper would come to the temple and would ask the Levitical gatekeeper, who is worthy to come in and worship? And, And the Levitical gatekeeper would recite the balance of Psalm 15 as an answer. As the Israelites were were pilgrimaging to different festivals and feasts, someone would call out, verse 1, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? And then the rest of the people who were pilgrimaging together with them would recite the answers together. Uh, They would use this psalm in in family and and personal devotions. And so it's, it's an entrance liturgy, but it was also wisdom literature because it it contains uh, moral implications uh, pertaining to those who want to worship. And so that's what Psalm 15 is. And so David asks this question uh, in verse 1, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? And your your scripture may say, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Uh, Your sanctuary, uh, the, the center of worship. Who may dwell or sorry, who may live on your holy mountain? And, and that would be Mount Zion, a place where David proclaimed to be a site of worship. And so what David is asking is who may live, who may dwell? And in Hebrew, it gives the full range of, of coming before a person. So, so who may come in and come out? And then who may live? Who may stay and dwell with you? He's asking this question, who is it that's eligible? Who is it that's worthy? Who is it that qualifies to come before your presence and to worship? And it really could be treated as a rhetorical question. Because really what verse 1 affirms is that no one in and of themselves qualifies or is eligible or is unobstructed to come into the presence of God. To worship. But the problem is the psalmist answers the question, even though it really could be a rhetorical question. And so the psalmist gives 10 characteristics that define the character or the nature of the kind of person who is able to come unobstructed into the presence of God, to visit uh, or to stay. And there's a couple of different ways that we can look at these 10 characteristics uh, that are suggested by different commentators. The, the one that I think is most helpful is to see the first two characteristics kind of summarizing the whole answer. 
And then the next eight characteristics, David is kind of fleshing out what it means to live a life defined by the first two characteristics. Now, he gives 10. There's all sorts of suggested reasons why he gives 10 answers. There's 10 you know, ten digits on your hands, uh, 10 commandments. Uh, there could be more characteristics that David gave. But it's going to be very clear, very quick, that the standards are high. God has very high standards when it comes to his house rules. In fact, he demands perfection and he demands holiness from someone who would come unobstructed into his presence. And so the psalmist answers the question, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? In verse 2, we see those first two characteristics that I think summarize the whole answer. The one whose walk is blameless. The one who does what is righteous. And the word blameless uh, in its purest sense speaks of someone whose way of life, whose pattern of life is completely and perfectly free of evil. That's their normal routine. They live a life of of perfect integrity. They live a life of, of perfect obedience to God. So there's the first house rule. And, and if you're ticking beside these verses, if you qualify or not, if you're like me, you're ready to move past these first 10 characteristics because I've already failed. And then he says, one who does what is righteous. One whose action, one whose, whose conduct is keeping with, in keeping with God's righteous standards. This is a person who is eligible to come unobstructed into the presence of God because he continually does the will of God. And so that kind of summarizes the kind of person who freely can come into the presence of God in and of themselves. They're blameless and they're righteous. And then the psalmist goes on to flesh that out. What what does that look like? And we're not going to take a whole lot of time because most of these are are pretty self-explanatory. It says the eligible person is, is one who speaks the truth from their heart. At the very core of their being is integrity and honesty. Whose tongue utters no slander. This person is not a gossiper. Not going around spreading uh, falsities and, and mean things about their neighbors. Who does no wrong to a neighbor. Who casts no slur on others. Who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord. This person is not looking uh, for uh, the influence uh, of a person who flagrantly and and knowingly is living in a life of sin. And this has nothing to do with evangelism. It's talking about influence. But rather, this person is looking for the influence of someone who honors God and is striving to do uh, what is right who keeps an oath even when it hurts. This this person keeps their word even when it's going to cost them. doesn't change their mind. Who lends money to the poor without interest. This person does not take advantage of someone who's in need. Who doesn't accept a bribe against the innocent. This person refuses to be involved in, in, in any perversion of justice for selfish gain. 
And then there's a promise at the end of the psalm. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. A promise that there will be no eviction. If you can mark 10 check marks down these 10 characteristics, you've got no problem. You can come unobstructed into the presence of God. You can come and go. You can come and stay. You won't be evicted. That's Psalm 15. I don't know what you think about Psalm 15. Me, when I read it and think about it and meditate on it, my first thought is, ouch. And uh, maybe some of you have come this morning and going, I didn't realize I was going to come to church and be steamrolled by a psalm. They're supposed to be nice. They're supposed to be what you read when, when you're, you're feeling blue. Maybe some of the things in this psalm would have been better left unheard or, or, or not understood. And so what do we do with this seemingly disturbing and impossible to follow Psalm. Well, I want to just share with you some implications of this psalm as we go from this part of the service into our table time. And the first implication is this, that Psalm 15 confronts us with the holiness of God. Although Psalm 15 is known as entrance liturgy, the reality is none of us in and of ourselves qualify to come into the presence of God on our own. The psalm points out a reality of the nature of God that from a human standpoint, and I've mentioned this numerous times from this platform, uh, is, is a, an impossible dilemma. Because on the one hand, we know that God is a God of love and of mercy and of grace, But what's implied very clearly in Psalm 15 is that that God is holy. And God's just. And because God is holy, he can't allow sin into his presence. In fact, he's repulsed by sin. And because he's just, he must deal with sin. He must deal with the fact that we're unable to live up to this checklist perfectly. Sometimes we do better, sometimes we do worse. And I wonder as we're confronted with the holiness of God, do we really appreciate the holiness of God? Do we truly appreciate what it is about God that makes him totally different than us? That, That sets him apart from us? Do we truly appreciate all those things about God that set him above us? Do we appreciate the things about God that sets him against us? His hatred for sin and the fact that he must deal with the problem of sin. As we consider the holiness of God, what's our attitude as, as we come physically or prayerfully into his presence. Now, I think there's two extremes that, that at times we can, we can lean towards. 
Sometimes it's the extreme of being frustrated to the point you want to just quit. That you're so paralyzed by the absolute contrast between who we are and what we are and who God is and what he is that we've concluded that there's no point. There's no point coming before him in prayer. There's no point trying to come into his presence because we'll never be able to bridge the gulf. And so we quit. The other extreme is, is, is an extreme of, of thoughtlessness and carefreeness. That, that we've heard about this free access that we have into the presence of God. And so we crash into the presence of God with little thought. We do it casually. One of the beautiful truths of the New Testament church is that we can boldly enter into the presence of God. But we stress that so much that we come rushing into the presence of God and we almost treat God like he's a chum, like he's a buddy, and we, we fail to recognize him for his holiness. So implication one is Psalm 15 confronts us with the holiness of God. And the second thing that's important for us to, to, to come to grips with is the fact that the house rules remain the same. Because some of you I know are probably going, okay, Brent, there's probably a New Testament loophole or shortcut. God's standards are really high. And just because we live in the New Testament... He, he hasn't lowered the bar. He hasn't decreased the standards. He hasn't removed some of the house rules. Because if he did, that would reflect on his character. But he's holy. And he's just. And whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, in a way, we're all on equal footing. He demands holiness, righteousness, and perfection. Which leads me to the third implication. Which is despite the apparent hopelessness, there is good news. In fact, it's our great hope. You see, there's another purpose for entrance liturgy. There's another purpose for Psalm 15 in the life of the Hebrews. See, Psalm 15 would confront them with the fact that they can't live up to these standards they can't perfectly follow the house rules. There is no reason that they in and of themselves would be allowed to come unobstructed into the presence of God and to stay for a while or to remain forever. And so what Psalm 15 did for them is it reminded them of something very important. They need to sacrifice. And they knew that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. That's why it was read from Hebrews during the praise team time about the priests who once a year would, would make a sacrifice that would cover the people's sins and would, would point forward to a day where God's promised Messiah would come and put those yearly sacrifices to bed because once and for all, the perfect sacrifice would be made. And as we come into the New Testament times, nothing has changed. 
We're confronted with the house rules of Psalm 15. And it's to remind us we need a sacrifice. But the difference is Jesus has come. That Jesus is our sacrifice. That Jesus came and took our sins upon himself and he paid the price, the wages for our sin. And he lived a perfect life. Jesus had unobstructed access into the presence of God the Father. And so how can we have free access into the presence of God? It's by being confronted with the truth of Psalm 15. Recognizing that in and of ourselves, we can never live up to God's standards. And then to put our faith and our trust in the person and work of Jesus and what he did on our behalf. And what scripture tells us is that if we do that, if we say, God, I can't, I, I got no check marks. I did brutal on Psalm 15. I, I shouldn't even know the address to where your house is, let alone get to enter your house. But I understand what your son did for me. And I will put my faith and my trust in him and I'll accept the forgiveness that, that he is offering. And it says that the righteousness of Jesus is credited, is imputed to our account. And so when we knock on God's door and he opens the door, he sees us through the blood and in the person and through the work of his son. And he says, come on in. That's the gospel. There is great hope, despite what Psalm 15 may do for you at the beginning. A fourth implication. To me, Psalm 15 points out the importance of confession. When we recognize our inability to live up to God's standards, and when we recognize what God has done for us through Jesus, Recognizing those things can't help but change our heart. To confess simply is to, to agree with God about our sin, about our inability to live up to his standards. And confession is a real confusing topic for us. Some of us may think, well, we don't need to confess. We, we're already saved. God judges us, God, God um, we confess once to God as judge. And he saves us. That's what Roman 8 tells us. He, he justifies us. We're innocent because of what Jesus has done for us. But the New Testament tells us that, that, that God forgives us continually as a father. That's how we have communion with him restored. Because we will sin. And sin has consequences. And if you went through the New Testament, you'd see all the different consequences of, of sin. And, and John, writing to believers, says that if you say you don't sin, you're just deceiving yourself. But when you sin, if you confess your sin, God's faithful and just to, to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And throughout the New Testament, we see all these, these hindrances uh, in our relationship with God 
because of sin. And so we need to confess as we read a passage like Psalm 15 and we recognize that this is what God wants. And this is how I fail. And so we go to God in confession. God, I know that when I sin, you're not going to kick me out of your family because I put my trust in Jesus. But my sin hinders my prayer life. It mars my testimony. It grieves your spirit. It causes disunity within the church. I confess my sin, will you forgive me? Will you restore communion, the fullness of communion with me? And we understand that as if you're a parent. Like when your kid does something wrong and you send them up to their room, you're not kicking them out of your family. You're disciplining them. They're experiencing punishment. And then when they come and say, Dad, Mom, I'm sorry. I realize what I've done is wrong. Will you forgive me? Certainly, I forgive you. Come on. Come sit at the table with me. And that's what it's like with God. And, and, and so Psalm 15 reminds me of the importance of confession. And then the last implication is it reminds me of the importance of preparation. ask you a question, and I know today with the snow is probably not the best day to be asking this question, but how did you prepare as you made your way to gather with your church family to worship? What was your mindset? Was it a mad and hectic rush? That's the Mackie family experience. There's yelling and screaming, let's go. I got the car halfway down the driveway threatening that I'm driving without one kid who's still straggling in the house. What's your mindset that's routine? Well, that's what we do Sunday mornings. Eight o'clock, it's breakfast at 8.30, it's a shower, that we do this, we do that. And that's, that's how the Mackey family starts out. Mindset is routine. It then becomes really hectic uh, and, and, and crazy uh, when the routine starts failing. Maybe your mindset is last-minute decision. Do I get out of bed? Do I come to church? Do I stay at home and do those things I'd love to do that if I go to church, it's going to cut into that? Is, that? is that the kind of preparation we're doing? Or is our mindset, I'll, I'll, I'll get there when I get there? I stepped on my toes on two of them, so let me step on a few toes. And and this morning's not a good morning, so everyone's forgiven if you're late. But what does it reflect? Not just at Auburn, but so many churches when 75% of the people can't be here when the service starts. We read that passage from Hebrews chapter 10 that the part of us coming together is to encourage one another. What does that say to the praise team when they start and half the people aren't even in? We don't even know what to announce at the start of the service because some people may not hear it. What does it say to God? Someone said that how we prepare for coming together is directly related to the benefit we receive from coming together. How should we prepare? First of all, we need to prepare to receive from God. Sometimes I pray that with my kids. 
Saturday night. God, prepare our hearts to hear from you on Sunday so that we'll hear what you want us to hear and that you will do in us what you want to do in us. Because God will speak to us through the word, through song, through prayer, through the spoken and, 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 and the um, visible testimony of those that, that we're going to rub shoulders with as they live out the word. And God wants to speak to us. Are we prepared to hear and to receive from God? And then finally, prepared to respond. Because when we truly have asked God to speak to us, and he does, it'll change us. Especially if we're saying, God, help me to hear and help me to respond. And as the praise team, and, and Arnie, why don't you guys come on up as we, as we move into this song that I never told Arnie to pick. And when I saw it on the uh, uh, order of service, I said, what a fantastic song. Because it speaks so much about the implications of Psalm 15. And I encourage you as we sing these words, maybe stop singing the words and just pray to God. God, help me to receive what you want to say to me right now. And help me to respond as we sing the song together and as we transition into the table.